And that was just Negative Land with True False, the title track from their 2019 album, True False. And then before that, from their 2020 album, The World Will Decide, we heard Create the Visitor. And then uh, we heard a mixed up, mashed up version of a big 10-8 place. We heard two of them at the same time. And before that, we heard Lucas Foss from the album Geode from 1970 on the Candide label. We heard a bit of that mixed in. So uh, thank you so much for listening to A Different Nature. This has been Rich. Hopefully you made it to the Negative Land show. If you're listening to this show, you may not have. But, you know, I'm there and I'm here and maybe I'll see us there. So thank you for listening and stay tuned for The Talking Earth on KBOO. And then um, next week, it'll be another a different nature host. KBOO, Portland, Oregon. Bridging the gap between prisons, prisoners, and the community. This is Mumia Abu-Jamal. I see the mountain And that is all I see on Friday, September 24th, 12.05 p.m., Moving On will feature the music of Dave Carter and Tracy Grammer. They were national stars based here in Portland. They had recorded several albums before Dave's tragic death in 2002. Since then, Tracy has been promoting Dave's songs on her own album. We will also be hearing some rare selections by Tracy and friends recorded at Winter Folk 15 in 2012, a benefit for Sisters of the Road Cafe. Also, we're going to be hearing several selections from John McCutcheon's latest album. Tune in Friday, September 24th, a little after 12 noon, for a celebration of the music of Dave Carter and Tracy Grammer. I see the mountain, and that is all I see. Welcome to the Talking Earth. Fall Equinox Edition. I'm your host, Dan Raphael. Today's poets are Suzanne Sigafus, Tommy Gaffney, and Josh Lubin. I recorded Suzanne on my porch, so you might hear a truck or a dog, the outside world in the background. Uh, and first up is Suzanne, who may be Portland's tallest woman poet. This swarm of lights, Susan Sigafus's full-length collection of poems, was published by IBM Books in 2020. Her chapbook, Held in the Weave, was published previously by Finishing Line Press. Her work has appeared in the Bellingham Review, the Oregonian, Windfall, Poeming Pigeons Garden Issue, Lightwood Journal, and many others. Forthcoming in 22, she'll be one of many poets in I Want to Be Loved by You, Poems on Marilyn Monroe, an anthology in tribute 60 years after her death. All profits from this anthology will be contributed to RAINN, a nonprofit fighting against gender-based violence. And here's Suzanne. Well, good evening, um, everyone. I'm really happy to be here on The Talking Earth, and I wanted to thank Dan Raphael so much for inviting me to be um, among the poets tonight. I really appreciate it. So well, I'm going to be reading from my book that came out almost exactly one year ago from when I'm recording this in August of 2020. It's called This Swarm of Light, and it's my first complete collection, so it was a very big deal for me, and um, really happy to share some poems with you tonight. And the, the poems 
I'm going to head for are the, almost all of them have tree imagery in them. I think about, you know, what we've lost lately with the fires. And these were definitely written before all of the uh, enormous changes began with our climate. So I'm paying tribute to them. And um, let's all do that together. Here's a, I'm going to start out with a poem about hot, hot, hot temperatures. But this was when they were pretty rare and only happened in August, and we really noticed them. <laughs> so anyway, this is called Fever Season. Heat cracks the sky. Shooting stars scatter. Seeds burst from pods, prompting the old to make wishes. August is a thirsty hound, pacing figure eights into the carpet. We pace with him, calling out to constellations. Stay! Summer dares to cease. Lakeside picnics jump back into baskets. Revelers dash to their cars and drive in reverse, necks and shoulders in a twist, eager again for July's last words, June's first steps for leaves that cling like mad to the branch. Field notes. Sorrow makes us reckless. Clover, sweetgrass, wild flowers. A roan, a paint, a warm blood, two weathered mares. Bees come and go in oaks, and in that grove and shade I sit. Binoculars trained on the horses. One mare is chewing daisies. Memory. Slice of apple for a pony. Keep your hand flat, he'll take it. My five-year-old palm, the pony's muzzle, dark mane, white star. Memory. Grief-filled, I climb a fence and dash toward horses. The stallion startles, wheels, and as one, the herd runs at me, then splits, left, right, rivers of horse, the earth tympanic, smell of horse, they gallop away. The meadow hushed, I kneel. The mercy of horses, one low hill, that swarm of light. Playlist, Willow Song, Egrets Listen, and the Mossy Bank, too, angled, strewn with forget-me-nots. Countless blue eyes looking up. The trestle trembles. Rails reach back to the station where a lover runs beside the train. You saw that movie. 
You've been the runner. Rod, piston, wheels, turn slow, then clouds of steam, songs of the shovel, coal and fire. The iron horse cleaves the air. Coast winds west, gorge winds east, Mistral, Shiraco, Santa Ana whistle through needles of pines at the timber line as the green, green eye watches you sing, love, here I am, find me, and love finds you, or it doesn't. Either way, your next song is, oh, let me live through this storm. So my next poem is, is, would be labeled a persona poem, sorry, a, a persona poem. And that is a poem in which the poet, speaker, takes on the voice of another being, another object, another living thing, or any, anyway, any one of many sentient things. <clears throat> And I, um, with all the changes happening to our trees, I feel a little presumptuous talk, speaking for a tree, but nevertheless, it's written and I will read it. <clears throat> Song of the Wine Dark Maple. Evergreens, I hear you singing every day, not I. I'm voiced, silent, voiced again. I'm in flux, deciduous, and lucky as a spruce. The earth denies me nothing. True, our tree songs vary, but we trees share water, mourn our fallen, branches reaching out to comfort. Humans. You flatter us with a tree pose in your yoga class. Wearing baggy pants, loose shirts, you're on one foot and rootless, reaching. Like seasons, balance comes and goes. Seasons give us, trees and people, common ground, yet unlike humans when it's... Yet... Unlike humans, when it's winter, I am naked. In icy storms, my slenderest and finest branches act as reed, as strings. I resonate, I sing. On coldest days, I'm a tenor, stoic, masculine. In springtime, I am sister, I am mother, lace unfurling, promising the bloom, the fruit, until the shock of summer and there's no girl left in me. I'm jazz, leafed out. I'm stay up late. I'm shady, shaded, shading. July, it's cool, it's hot like always. Each summer noon, you stop. You look beneath your shoe to see your shadow. Do you seek oasis? You are welcome to this shade, but don't request my autumn song. 
Not now. Not that. Stay a while. Yes, bring me water, please. Deny me nothing. So here is a poem that is also a tribute to trees, and it's also a tribute to an early friendship of mine, an unusual friendship in that the woman down the street was just a little younger than my mother, but she she just was so kind to me, and she was so important in my life. So here is um, this poem called For the Elm Trees and for Miriam. Eight Dutch elm trees vanished. Weakened by blight, the city cut them down that summer between sixth grade and junior high, where, I was told, I would walk from class to class in a three-story building. How would I find my way? The street is bright and hot, minus the elms. Shading my eyes, I hurry to the far end of the block to see Miriam, my first Jewish friend, my only grown-up friend. Mama told me, Miriam loves you like the daughter she never had. I am welcomed in her home filled with noisy sons and dogs. The boys run in and out. The collie shares its collie fluff with carpets and upholstery. Toy poodles walk on hind legs on command and wearing skirts. Miriam, above the chaos, asks me my dreams and, uh, and my ideas. She says it is important to form opinions. My family moves across town to a block shaded by oaks and maples. That fall in school, I am tasked to write opinions. Graded, some are praised, some marked frivolous or see me after class. My voice shuts down in the glare. Miriam, did you love me like a daughter? You were younger than my mother, your son's old now. So am I. I miss you and the elms. Learning beauty. An apology to conifers. Schooled in the bare branch, pink blossom, ripe cherry, falling leaf, dow of deciduous, I could not love you, spruce and cedar, thick against the hills, nor you, pines and firs, sentinels of the interstate. I drove fast and north, then fast and south, dissing you as same old same. I'm sorry. I am not that person now. I live among you, with you, breathing air fresh praised with pine and in your thrall. You loved me when I was lost. Love me now with ever constant green, 
your way of stillness, willing to direct my eyes every time to the sky. For my last poem, I would like to read one called Canyon again. This was a poem I wrote in response to a poem by a poet I really admire, Joseph Millar. You say you fear mountains and, and people talking. The talking scares me less than mountains, though talk may gather strength, becoming aggregate. You write about a horse. You sculpt him to remind me goodness dwells within the equine body, deep goodness that could be lost in human noise or on a mountaintop, a structure held in place by veins of ore, threads of bright metal, you call them, bound to granite and vice versa until nightfall and the avalanche. My fear, the ascent. The sun is low, it's colder and how cruel, less oxygen. Ambition gone, muscles burn to breathe, a test, a task beyond climbing. What is vertical? I want to visit a canyon again. I'll take the tram out of love for my bones. No one will talk. A horse munches wildflowers. The canyon floor, the earth's enormous heart. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Dan. Bye. Thanks, Suzanne. And here's a poem of my own, which involves trees, as Suzanne's did. I wrote it just over a year ago, September 11th, 2020. You may have also been here. Downwind from forest screaming. House arrest, unrest, here in the city with the world's worst air. Evacuation warning line just a mile away. Sky glowing orange like another planet. The sun invisible except for its pulse. Hey everybody, the apocalypse is in town. And this morning, my lungs are feeling it. No quick hope in the forecast. Step outside, do I feel lucky today? If I could glow with my own burning, smokeless, canned essence, my inner lumens fuel from the busy time, stash for the lean, cause heat's gotta move. When I can see out but not go out, can see outside my body but not leave it, world slowed down by lack of light, motion, safety, big wind came through, partied a couple days, then left without paying or taking any trash. Since the smoke and ash are mass cremation, why wouldn't I keep thinking of death? Since the slim odds of winning the COVID lottery are keeping me inside, why wouldn't I pound against all six sides of this cage? Maybe get slim enough to slip between, to take in so little air, be so spacious, micro spit would go right through me. Like a mirror would go through me. As what I ingest gets reluctant to leave, as something I didn't order waits on my doorstep, aromatic with nostalgic hunger for choice and spontaneity. If I lose any more weight, 
If supplies run out, no messages coming in, no matter how many I send, I'm sure I'll recognize what's across the schoolyard when I can see there again. We were spared this fire season in Northwest Oregon, but not the rest of the West, especially Central Oregon and Northern California, got hammered by the fire season. But back to poetry with someone whose words are often on fire, Tommy Gaffney. I recorded Tommy in his most comfortable writer's shed, a former tool shed, fine art all around, but my favorite thing, and his too, is the sign of the dearly missed St. John's booksellers, owned by the even more missed Nina Rade. Support your local independent bookstores, as many as you can. Tommy Gaffney was born and raised in Kentucky, somewhere between the trailer park and the projects. In 2010, he was nominated for the Oregon Book Award. He didn't win. Gaffney's favorite colors are John Deere Green and Joey Ramone Black. And here's Tommy. This in the Smith Street. They put old Ralph on hospice, but he didn't take it lying down. Still sat in that porch swing, smoking his goddamn Winstons and drinking the best martinis in all of North Portland, or at least St. John's, or at least this in the Smith Street. There's all manner of God in his fears, but old Ralph got a tonic or seltzer for every one of them fuckers. He got a rosary hanging from his shower head, a soap on a rope for his dirty old soul. He got dream catchers and menorah. He got pixie dust and a sugar bowl on the counter for his morning coffee and whiskey. His 20s were his bluest, though his 30s and 40s and 50s weren't much better. His 60s can kiss his ass too. Oh, Ralph spent his entire life in that dreamless house, trying to find funny things to smoke and cursing the elasticity of love or whatever it's called when those you choose to love choose to leave. Oh, Ralph had two whores in there at the same time. Only he never called them whores, he called them strays. As he was fascinated with the freedom of strays and how even with all that space to roam, they always ended up in snares. He'd give them a place to heal for the night or for the month, fuck free. While he sat on that porch swing smoking his goddamn Winstons and chasing off every boogeyman that came a-calling. Old Ralph's yard looked like a swap meet, but he kept it all to himself. All them car parts and dishwashers and piles of intentions that never found steady ground enough to walk more than a few feet at a time. Baby steps. Sometimes in the summer, he left endowments at the back door for my little girls. Plastic castles and shit like that. Always pink. Always streaked by a washcloth trying its best despite shaky hands. Yesterday... Old Ralph reared up and opened his bedroom window to set his soul astray. The music of his freedom was Nat King Cole and Burl Lives. Christmas carols bounced against that warm August evening like ice cubes against glass. Must have been a grotto in his chest where he kept all his silver and gold. We were all born free, some say. Others say we ain't nothing but water heaters. Ralph's not a bad man. He's not a good man either. He's just gone. And so are the best martinis in all of North Portland, or at least St. John's, or at least this end of Smith Street. Brandy Maybe. I'd smoke out in the parking lot with Brandy during her breaks. She liked watching the rain fall, not all of it, but single drops. She'd focus on one from as high as she could see and follow it till it crashed into the blacktop. We'd talk about the science and miracles. 
Brandy filled my heart by the grace of some electric method. Being near her felt like jumper cables when you let the ends touch. This place would turn you into a sociopath, she'd say. We spent our mornings looking for sunshine and our afternoons looking for shade. One of the girls had blow back in the dressing room, but never any instructions on how to come back down in time for supper. Brandy was a dancer. First shift working towards third shift. And Brandy's commitment to surviving far outweighed her commitment to living. How you doing, baby? Woke up on the green side of the grass again, she'd say. I like weirdos with a great ass. I could say that to her face, but not much more. Brandy found perils and peril in pearls and was easily bored with unearned reverence. You ever notice that restaurants smell different? And you actually had the money to pay for it, she'd say. She asked me one day why I keep coming around this stockade. Brandy talked about stockades whenever she talked about the club or her family. The parking lot was emptier than usual that day, though the stage calls for her best performance every single time. I told her I didn't need freedom as much as I needed her friendship. Brandy, maybe let's get out of here and head out west. Owensboro or Salt Lake or something. I read her poems some nights. None of her other customers read her poems, but I'd read her the best ones I could muster. And when I ran dry, I'd read her Robert Frost and Sylvia Plath. The girls at college were always reading Sylvia Plath. Brandy had a tattoo on one wrist she regretted. A day without a buzz is a day that never was. She had a tattoo on the other wrist she regretted not getting sooner. Though she'd be small, she'd be fierce. Brandy sent me away that day forever away. I hate the subtlety of poetry, she said. Sometimes a girl just wants her hair pulled. Driving up 7th Street, I cried so hard my soul buckled. Not because I'd never see Brandy again, that much was certain as Indian ink but because I never even knew her real name. Still Steven. Anna Anastasia was great at the register. When the manager was out on 23rd for lunch, she ran sales that made her giggle. Like for the next 20 minutes, everything orange in the store is 20% off. Or tell me about your most recent nervous breakdown, get 15% off. Or give me a quote from Priscilla, queen of the desert, she wielded the intercom like a proper Third Street MC. Anna Anastasia wore her tattoos like costume jewelry, fading stitches across her upper and lower lips, paw prints from her right temple down to somewhere inside her blouse, the meaning close but hard to pin down. I wear my particular metaphors on my forearms. <laughs> Sanatoria is plural for sanatorium. Insanity is plural for lapses in reason when they become too frequent to be called momentary. Punch drunk is plural for pretending every throttle is part of the plan. Anna Anastasia always wanted dominoes back in the storeroom. Threes and fives and Lone, Store, Lone Star 42. Learned how to play in the in barracks in the Kuwaiti desert when her name was still Steven. Anna Anastasia cut herself in patterns like lattice in a pie. You could see them when she wore sleeveless sundresses and let a strap fall. I got patterns too. Cigarette burns across the back of my left hand. I was hurting, but didn't want to mess up the works in my writing hand. It's hard to be in transition in Texas, I heard, even in Austin. So she hopped a freight and passenger to Portland, Puddletown, anything Goesville, fuck it, Berg. 
She found me and a bunch of other maniacs at a thrift store that paid no mind to drug tests or Adam's apples on girls as long as they clocked in on time. After this, after all I've been through, maybe I'm still just Steven. We were drunk. All of us at the thrift store got drunk on payday. Our backpacks full of cheap first finds we had priced ourselves and canned goods from the donation barrel. Payday was the only day of our lives together that made sense. I shared stories about being left out always by the cool kids and the rich kids and the smart kids. She shared stories about getting HIV while turning tricks on the way out to Fucketburg. It's not a contest, I told her, but Anna, darling, you might be the toughest broad I've ever known. A reed splintered. This is for Delia, rest easy. When I knew Delia, she was married to a man that pulled a knife on me, but I deserved it. I was about to whip his ass in the middle of an art gallery on preview night, no less. My truck smells like my father, all rust and greasy tools and floorboard barely holding on to its integrity, lopsided like Dixie Loaf in a frying pan. I want to be buried in a cemetery, I decided just now. Not for y'all or me, but for that strange boy who wanders amongst tombstones because the judge and the dead do, he can't hear. Maybe he might can steal a line or two when he sees my name in recess. Maybe he might can be reminded of something sad but with hope beneath the veneer, coaxed out with just a few brave analogies. Maybe he might could be a surf to metaphor. When I knew Delia, I hadn't owned a vehicle in 20 years. We took buses to poetry readings across town, no matter the number of stops. Our words deserve a gut to punch, and those jokers in Southeast, Southeast had soft bellies. Her voice was an oboe solo. I got a hot tub, bought it after my first ever bonus that wasn't a frozen Black Forest ham. I worked for, a corporate, I worked for corporate America, only it's a Danish company, so it's corporate Europe, Northern Europe. And they give out bonuses, and I got a bonus, and I bought a hot tub because sitting at a computer all day kills you unless you have a hot tub. That's what the Danes say come bonus time. Sometimes Arbivites gnaw at the chain link fence, and I can't help but think of the true flimsy of barbed wire and passwords and gun safes. My daughters ask me what language God speaks. I say Spanish. A Spanish prayer is the prettiest the heavens might could ever hear. When I knew Delia, we joked about preemptive wheelchair ramps into our favorite writing corners. Taverns is what we meant. I never thought I'd outlive my vanity, but here I am. A neon green inchworm on a slippery log. A sous chef trying to stuff a rainbow into a large jar and caring not one bit about it spilling over the side. I came from modest circumstances and boastful pride. I could drink forever sometimes. My cousin was named after a small town in New England, home to her daddy's favorite publishing house. He'd only seen his name in print when it was typed on rejection letters, speeding tickets, court summonses, but he was a real storyteller. A bootlegger with the fastest car in the valley and metaphors to spare. Hey, Delia reached out to me not too long ago. When I knew Delia, she never said, hey. Hey, I got a question for you. I had questions for her too, I reckon. It had been years, but I didn't get back to her in time. Distracted, I was distracted. I'm always distracted. Wonder Valley, this is a Joshua Tree poem. 
I didn't expect to see celestial beings until I delivered our greatest terrestrial offerings from the outstretched gangway of one of our most advanced Earth ships. But here I am, busted flat in the slabs after crapping out in Wonder Valley. Frightened by the sounds of thunderbirds above me, might it be some desert stasis I'm feeling all kinds of nothing causes more all kinds of nothing. Or literally got a mind of her own now and is temperamental when it comes to ordering bottom shelf. My best thoughts come when I'm sitting at the base of trees. Ponderosa pines and Joshua trees, barstools. Oaks are pretty good, though sequoias demand too much in return. From the cranny, it's easy to complain about the lack of nooks and crannies in open spaces. Like waiting for all that free air to be seized by eminent domain. Like waiting for all the harpies to align. Like waiting for all the excuses on sitting still to stand tall as a timid rose in a starting pistol. I left home for the Valley of the Crescent Moon. Here they call it Wonder Valley, but I call it the Valley of the Crescent Moon because that's the only time I'll leave the homestead. Any fuller a moon, I'd feel crushed. Any less, I'd cringe in the dark. At the Palms Lounge, out on Amboy Road, the well bourbon is tequila. The city's bad for my poetry anymore and I had to let it go. I had to run off to the desert pushed by a dead man's playlist, down by law, ready to retake peace, even if by Molotov cocktails made from mini bars. I didn't need salvation as much as I needed Salvation Mountain. I didn't need a recount as much as I needed a last chance. Ain't we all carnies anyway? Ain't we all just gonna burn up in the sun anyway? Potato Bug Hill. My windshield was cracked in a pattern that Coltrane would hire to play piano. And just beyond, the sunset was silent and violent. But there's a new moon tomorrow that's part of the promise. I had an Irish concussion and was dealing with the backlash of a dry mouth and all the bits designed to do my proper thinking struggled in their charge. The house she grew up in sat on a cliffside on Potato Bug Hill. And she joked it was all downhill from there. Her father's sneezes would rattle the beans in the sugar jar, and she'd flinch as if the house might tumble over. I thought often of her joke not being a joke at all, and I thought about the rage beyond her smile as benign as Mars. She condemned herself to the nectar of the moment and not much more. She said, let's go find some noise down the road somewhere, but we always landed ass backwards at the end of the north runway, surprised at our domesticity. It was all freight, but... From below, a UPS plane looks as elegant as an airship from the golden age. Especially when you ain't been nowhere further than a tank of gas could take you. I'd never seen the Madison Regatta. She'd never seen the Kentucky Derby. Any bets we placed, we placed together. And we always put everything on the long shot, the fluke adorned on the robes of a sure thing. Hothouse roses and vodka slammers. She shushed me over noises. The wheezing of planes coming and going. There's a romance in the familiar. Rhythm, nature, math, crawdads and rodents, crickets. Peace, she said. Peace just might be too fast for us to keep up with. I gave you some real good stories, she said, just before cracking my windshield with her combat boo. Something about her grace and my patience not seeing eye to eye. This fight was about the jazz sounds in factories and how she thought Coltrane was no good for efficiency. Growing up on a cliffside makes one wary of erratic composition. 
I might be a studying cliche, I said, but I believe in the sound of hooves breaking away from the pack. And I believe a landing is a landing smooth or not. And I believe in love even on staggered gallows for separate crimes. Thanks, Tommy. Uh, now I want to read a poem by Natalie Diaz, whose book, Post-Colonial Love Poem, won last year's Pulitzer Prize in poetry. But this is the title poem from her first book, When My Brother Was an Aztec. When my brother was an Aztec, he lived in our basement and sacrificed my parents every morning. It was awful, unforgivable, but they kept coming back for more. They loved him, was all they could say. It started with him stumbling along La Avenida de los Muertos, my parents walking behind like effigies in a procession he might burn to the ground at any moment. They didn't know what else to do except be there to pick him up when he died. They forgot who was dying, who was already dead. My brother quit wearing shirts when a carnival of dirty-breasted women made him their leader, following him up and down the stairs. They were acrobats, moving, twitching like snakes. They fed him crushed diamonds and fire. He gobbled the gifts. My parents begged him to pluck their eyes out. He thought he was Huchisapokli, a god half Mayan, half hummingbird. My parents at his feet wrecked honeysuckles. He lowered his sword-like mouth, gorged on them, draining color until their eyebrows whitened. My brother shattered and quartered them before his basement festivals, waved their shaking hearts in his fists, while flea-ridden dogs ran up and down the steps, licking their asses, turning tricks. Neighbors were amazed my parents' hearts kept growing back. It said a lot about my parents, or parents' hearts. My brother flung them into santones, dropped them from cliffs, punched holes into their skulls like useless jars or vases, broke them to pieces, and fed them to the gods, ruling the rainy crotches of street fair whores with pocked faces, spreading their thighs and flop houses with no electricity. He slept in filthy clothes, smelling of rotten peaches and matches, fell in love with sparkling spoonfuls the carnival dog women fed him. My parents lost their appetites for food, for sons. Like all bad kings, my brother wore a crown, a green baseball cap turned backwards with a Mexican flag embroidered on it. When he wore it in the front yard, which he treated like his personal Zicolo, all his realm knew he had the power that day, had all the jewels a king could eat or smoke or shoot. The slave girls came to the fence and ate out of his hands. He fed them maize through the chain links. My parents watched from the window, crying over their house-turned-zoo, their son who was now a rusted cage. The Aztecs held court in a salt cedar grove across the street where peacocks lived. My parents crossed fingers so he'd never come back, lit novena candles so he would. He always came home with turquoise and jade feathers and stinking of peacock shit. My parents gathered what he left of their bodies, trying to stand without legs, trying to defend his blows with missing arms, searching for their fingers to pray, to climb out of whatever dark belly my brother, the Aztec, their son, had fed them to. Natalie Diaz, look her up. And now we'll be looking up, and there's no connection, uh, with our next reader, Josh Lubin. Uh, Josh Lubin has been performing and organizing literary events in Portland for over 20 years. He was a four-time member of the PDX Poetry Slam team and the founder of the multilingual spoken word electronic and live music project Bossa Novella. More recently, he curated and hosted the weekly performance series Salon Skid Row. He is currently working on several poetry and prose projects, and all of tonight's pieces come from his most recently completed manufact, Regular Blues. 
manuscript, regular blues. One of his favorite places to perform his work, he says, is over for the past 20 years is here on KBU, and many of his performances from the past can easily be found through KBU's online archive. Asking to show. So here's Josh. So I want to read a few pieces to you about the Old Estate Hotel, which is an old town. And I've lived there over different periods of time, even worked there once back in the late 90s. So the first piece is called Earth After Midnight. In the heaven of my old town hotel, the fat guy next door looks like a corpse. Every time I pass him in the hallway after midnight, I keep picturing him in an open casket, and he knows it. He lumbers along, shirtless and short of breath, pale baby death, up for a piss in the, in the witching hour. He lumbers along with that sad look in his eyes. It's the look of the moment you first realize that there is less life in you than there is more. He knows it. Everyone knows it. We're all taking bets on each other's demise, on who's going to make it across the street or just back from the bathroom at night. Yesterday, I rode the elevator with a sheriff's deputy. He was tall and fat and looked like a strange angel with a gun, a can of mace, and handcuffs, making pickups, I asked. He just laughed and said, I hope not. The last time I was in a jail cell, the first thing I did was to stare into that little square of polished steel. It was the first time I noticed I was going gray. I felt okay about it. I had three days to kill. I was junk sick, spent a lot of time near the toilet, and just waited for the man to come around. Meanwhile, back on Earth, in my hotel, just after 2 a.m., I passed Pale Baby Death on my way to the bathroom again. He had that look. I feared he was near the end. We stood there for a second, shirtless and scratching. We were just two regular Joes, stuck at the crossroads, stuck between Portland and all eternity. The hallway was lined with red exit signs, glowing above us like circling vultures. His eyes got real wide. He knew. We, we all know. In Jewish households, when a loved one passes, they cover all the mirrors with a black cloth. I know it's about grief, but I think it's something more. Without another word, he slowly backed away from the bathroom and waddled into his room, scared shitless, just before the man came around. You see, death hates its own reflection. You just have to learn to read the signs and know when to stop staring at them. Second piece is a little bit longer piece, more like a prose piece. It's called The Poet Laureate of Cooch Street. I passed by Ray's room. The door was open, and he invited me in. We both lived on the fourth floor of the estate hotel, rooms 425 and 426. We were the lucky ones with rooms that had windows facing the action on Cooch Street, the bars, the rescue mission, and the streets that led into Chinatown. Usually, the streets were a blur of downtown punks, street preachers, and drunks, but it was late, early January, and it had been snowing hard, so it was quiet now. Snow has a way of draping a beautiful white blanket over everything, but this was Old Town, and we both knew better. Both of our rooms were the same size, not much bigger than a shoebox. There was a room for a single bed, a mini fridge and some shelves, a desk and a chair, and a sink with a small mirror above it, just like in jail. Except there, you got a pisser instead of a fridge, and it was all cold and made of steel. We, we had real mattresses, porcelain sinks, and mirrors made out of glass. We were moving up in the world. 
Just like in the rest of the building here and on every floor, it was a different kind of cold, and everyone, men and women alike, shared bathrooms, the showers, and a community kitchen. There was talk that the corner rooms were bigger, but I only knew Ray, and most of the tenants on the fourth floor kept to themselves. The fourth floor is the working floor. The tenants, or clients, as we are called, all have case managers, and we're all looking for work or have jobs, and we pay rents. Us clients are a mix of post-prison supervision, like Ray, those who graduated from the mentor program, like me, and a few hard cases peppered in. These were the permadrunks, the dual diagnosis cases, and none of them seemed to work much. I met a few of them in the passing, uh, like Sheila and those other folks that Ray warned me about. Sheila was one of those special cases. She was 40 but going on 70 in looks, was waiting on a room in a halfway house and lived off her SSI checks. She had a little dope habit and fancied herself an artist. She would shoot up in her room and roam the hallways, day and night, floating like a ghost with a sketch pad, an empty face and pale, pale hands clutching at piles of paper and broken crayons. She always looked half dead and disheveled, with sad skin sagging off her skeletal limbs as if it was trying to evacuate the hell that was her body. She never talked much and only drew pictures of birds entangled in barbed wire. Now, I knew a little about Ray, too. He was in his mid-sixties, black, tall, lanky and weathered, that old kind of con with cold eyes who chain-smoked, listened to baseball on the radio, told stories about failed bank robberies and cursed at cops. He always wore a tiger's cap and told me to call him Detroit. The first time we met, he asked where I was from, and now he calls me New York instead of my name. New York, how you doing, kid? He asked while offering me a soda and a seat in his bed. He took a seat in a chair by the window. Man, oh man, it's coming down, huh? Yeah, it really is, I said. Christ, Ray said while staring out the window. What a mess. I wouldn't want to be a bum out there in this weather. We're lucky. Yes, sir, we're the lucky ones. Now, here's the thing about Ray. He wasn't big on God, but he could, he could have been one hell of a preacher. He was always ready to pass on all kinds of wisdoms, and the sermon was about to begin. Hey, New York, what did I tell you about Houston? Houston, I asked. Yeah, Tony, that young, light-skinned boy from Texas. He likes to talk loud and throw his weight around with all the ladies in the lobby. Oh, Tony, right, I know the one. I remember what you said about him. You said never to trust an old con who wears a new watch. Yes, yes, Ray said, nodding his head up and down while scratching his chin. All that jewelry, all that spit and polish, and that boy don't even work. And he trucks around with that new girl on the third floor. What's her name again? Sandy, I said. I think she's from California. Right, right, from California. And here's the part that always got me. Ray had a way of sizing people up almost instantly. And he always had details. How he came by some of them, I'll never know. Sandy, he said, from California, staring at the ceiling with one eye closed like he was trying to calculate a tip. She's young, white and pretty, came from money and privilege, got into meth and did a little stretch for identity theft, and is always seeking compliments from Houston and all the other boys in the lobby. Yep, that's Sandy from California. Yeah, Ray said, looking at me with a big smile. See, if Daddy never loved you, and you've been stranded in a cell too long, any kind of contact feels like a steam, especially from them boys. And it's the truth. I've seen it. It's ugly, but it's the truth. Oh yeah, 
That's Sandy from California. See, you have to watch out for those girls in recovery. All they do is go to meetings and complain about the things they'll never see, the little things on TV and in pictures like the ocean and their kids. It's sad, but it's sink or swim. It's sink or swim. And them boys, them cons in recovery, you got to watch out for them too. Like that fake Roger from Florida. You got to watch out for recovery cons like him. Yeah, I said, he's a real creep. Roger, Ray said, staring back up at the ceiling. He's short and shy, always tucks in his shirt and sweaters and walks with a limp. He talks a lot about Jesus and his apostles and God like they're all his best friends. And he says, bless you, child, to everyone he passes very softly. But it's all a scam. It's a con. Roger ain't no man of God. He just uses it like a rake. Ray paused and looked at me square and serious. You know what a rake is, right? Yeah, I said, like in a poker game, when the house takes a piece of your winning hands. Yes, yes. Now, we are men of institutions, but you and I don't use it like some hustle to pull dimes out of nobody's pockets. I know that motherfucker. I did time with him in OSP. He found God behind bars after being someone's bitch. Watch that motherfucker. Every time he marks the sign of the cross, he winces. Shit. It sounds a little ugly, but it's the truth. And the truth is beautiful. I nodded my head and laughed. What's so funny, Ray asked. Yeah, I said, shrugging my shoulders. Not so funny, but it's something I remembered, the desk man said. He told me that ignoring the beauty and ugliness is a sin of the privileged. Well, damn, that motherfucker is some kind of poet, Ray said, crossing his arms with a strange little smile. Then he leaned back in his chair, closed his eyes, and shook his head. Softly, as a single note reverberated from the back of his throat, a sound that echoed somewhere between a sad purr and a sigh. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. It's baptism with a boneyard here. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. We all went and got lost. Then he opened his eyes, stretched out his arms, stared at me square again, and said, I tell you, New York, post-prison supervision in a Skid Row hotel is a zoo surrounded by the wrong kinds of bars. That's when I noticed it. All I could do was shake my head and laugh. What, Ray said? What's so damn funny? You old con. You motherfucker. You're wearing a brand new watch. Yes, Ray said, leaning in close, flashing a big toothy smile. My sister sent it to me for Christmas. All right, Detroit. All right. Thanks for the soda. I guess I'm heading back to my room. Just remember, New York, it ain't a crime to call someone a motherfucker if that's what they are. I nodded and we shook hands, then walked out into the hallway. At the end of the hallway, I saw Sheila. She was sitting by an open window, ripping up pictures from her sketch pad. She was tossing each one out of the window and watching as they would catch the wind. I could see each page hovering in the air for a bit, their edges ruffling up upon the breeze like they were going to lift before dropping like a stone down onto the snow-covered pavement. I walked up to her and asked, Sheila, you okay? She turned to me with a little pained smile and said, It's too bad. All we ever do is drown. Then she turned away and continued, tossing her barbed wire birds out the window, watching without a word, never looking away in case one of them might fly. Next piece, and I will say, 
These are all true stories. I've just changed some names and whatnot, uh, but they're all true. This is called A Good One. Here's the thing. I can chase it. A tale, a tune, a jackpot that smothers me like a floor show mattress and box spring. But none of it gives me sleep. Real sleep. Sleep like some of the old snoozes I used to know, be they blessed or bent or an old snowball of an excuse. Back at the Joyce Hotel, they're singing like I used to sing. Back in the county jails, just after chow when the boys got quiet. Back when once upon a time, if you were guilty, you could rest. Yes. Back then, there were no weekends because it was all some kind of work. I'm a jerk. Everyone knows to walk when you're up. And this ain't about money or love. That shit comes easy, reliable, like something you can really hold. Sleep is elusive, reclusive. It rides up like the man in a black Chevy Caprice when you least expect it. And I'm on the corner, and there's nothing in my palm. And Sundays aren't rest either. I said this was work. I'm thinking about all those boys, all of them. All the boys I used to be or about to. All of them. All the lonely boys in the beds I've made. All of them. Back when she kicked me out into the street, drink sick, in the rain, and I swore I'd never tie my shoelaces again. And I didn't do it for a whole month, drunk. I just let them drag. At least I stood up for something. Like the Joyce and the Jails and this little bird out my window singing, Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. He knows. They know. We all know. If you're going to be a bad boy, see it through. At least you'll stand up for something. Even the OTB boys will say you that for two bits on the dogs. I've seen it. I've seen it pour out of them like laces on the run. We're all guilty. Lord knows we've earned these stripes to sleep. Once... I cried like a baby over some chump change B&E. Either side of the hot lights, the lady detective smoothed out her skirt, sat quietly, and listened to me blather. I confessed my sins, held my head up high, and then I slept. It's like what old man Mike once said in OTB. I fought their wars. I loved all of my wives. I drank their wine. And when I get my 21-gun salute, it'll be just grand. And when they lower me into the ground, I want to be buried face down so the world can keep kissing my ass. I've got two bucks and two packs of cigarettes. They may not be the most handsome of men, and as my name suggests from the Bible, I know the difference between the promised land and when to lie down and really rest. And I will dream of the things I've been, a patriot and a drunk, a lover and a liar, a felon and a fighter, a respectable citizen, an honorable American, a mad-for-nothing junkie and thief. I've been a lot of things. Abraham Lincoln said, whatever you are, be a good one. At least I'm standing up for something. I have one last short piece. Uh, this time of year, suggest it. It's called Remember the Fall. Outside my window, I can see the rescue mission boys. They're all tender and quiet, soaking up the last of the sun. I can see them stretch like San Tropez beachcombers. Soon, the rain will wash them away. Soon, it's back to awnings and alcoves. Soon, it's back to 
Mad Dog 2020 and checking coin slots for any sign of the Madonna. I remember when summer was a mystery, curious as a kid. And I remember the fall, dragging shoelaces in the streets, hungry and drunk, waiting for God to shower me with dimes from the starry center of the Western night. Thanks, Josh. And here's uh, another poem from My Brother Was an Aztec by Natalie Diaz. No more cake here. When my brother died, I worried there wasn't enough time to deliver the 100 invitations I'd scribbled while on the phone with the mortuary because of the short notice, no need to RSVP. Unfortunately, the fireman couldn't come. I had hoped they'd give free rides on the truck. They did agree to drive by the house once with the lights on. It was a party, after all. I put Mom and Dad in charge of balloons, let them blow as many years of my brother's name, jails, $20 bills, midnight phone calls, fist fights, and ER visits as they could let go of. The scarlet balloons zigzagged along the ceiling like they'd been filled with helium. Mom blew up so many that she fell asleep. She slept for 10 years. She missed the whole party. My brothers and sisters were giddy, shredding his stained t-shirts and raggedy pants, throwing them up into the air like confetti. When the clouds came in, a few balloons slipped out the front door. They seemed to know where they were going and shrank to a fistful of red grins at the end of our cul-de-sac. The clowns played toy bugles until the air was scented with rotten raspberries. They pulled scarves from Mom's ear. She slept through it. I baked my brother's favorite cake, chocolate, white frosting. When I counted, there were 99 of us in the kitchen. We all stuck our fingers in the mixing bowl. A few stray dogs came to the window. I heard their stomachs and mouths growling over the mariachi band playing in the bathroom. There was no room in the hallway because of the magician. The mariachis complained about the bathtub acoustics. I told the dogs, no more cake here, and shut the window. The fire truck came by with the sirens on. The dogs ran away. I sliced the cake into 99 pieces. I chopped all the electronic equipment in the house, taped pink bows and glittery ribbons to them, remote controls, the Polaroid, stereo, shop vac, even the motor to dad's work truck, everything my brother had taken apart and put back together doing his crystal meth tricks. He'd always been a magician of sorts. Two mutants came to the door. One looked almost human. They wanted to know if my brother had willed them the pots and pans and spoons stacked in his basement bedroom. They said they missed my brother's cooking. Did we have any cake? No more cake here, I told them. Well, what's in the piñata, they asked. I told them God was, and they ran into the desert, barefoot. I gave Dad a slice and put Mom's in the freezer. I brought up the pots and pans and spoons. Really, my brother was a horrible cook. Banged them together like a New Year's Day celebration. My brother finally showed up asking why he hadn't been invited and who baked the cake. He told me I shouldn't smile, that this whole party was shit because I imagined it all. The worst part, he said, was he was still alive. The worst part, he said, was he wasn't even dead. I think he's right. But maybe the worst part is that I'm still imagining the party. Maybe the worst part is that I can still taste the cake. So thanks again to Natalie Diaz as well for... Uh, being such an amazing poet, but thanks to the other amazing readers tonight, Suzanne Sigafoos, Tommy Gaffney, and Josh Lubin. Thanks to all you listening, uh, wherever, whenever, and whoever you are. 
Thanks to the founders of the Talking Earth, Barbara Lamorticella and Walt Curtis, our ever-nimble engineer and guardian, Patrick Bocard, the Kibu Community Radio, and all who support it. I'm Dan Raphael, and I'll leave you with a quote or two. Uh, Rebecca Solnit, expect the unexpected, and remember that sometimes you have to be the unexpected. Uh, Tom Waits, there's no devil. There's just God when he's drunk. And Charles Olson, I've had to learn the simple things last, which made for difficulties. So keep learning. Don't be difficult. World will get better every day. Community Radio. We are in our fall drive exploring the sounds of democracy. Here at KBU, we believe that, much like democracy, community radio is an ever evolving experiment. And as the needs of our communities grow and change, we remain true to our mission of uplifting underrepresented voices, playing local musicians, and keeping you updated with local news and current events. Show your support by donating right now at kboo.fm slash give. Text KBOO to 44321 or click donate in the KBOO mobile app.